This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of Jazzed About Work. I'm Tom Hansen, guest hosting today and talking with Beverly Jones. Bev is the usual host of this podcast, but sometimes we like to turn the tables on her and get the benefit of her expertise. Bev also is the author of the career success book, Think Like an Entrepreneur, Act Like a CEO. This time, we're talking about what to do if you have a career stumble. We talk about strategies for moving on after a professional catastrophe. Bev, everyone in their professional life has at least one story, if not more, of stumbling, having a what some would call a, a career catastrophe or a catastrophe on the job, a major fail at, at some point. Uh, that can be totally devastating to pe- some people. It can be in some people's careers, and some other people seem to be able to get over it. Am I overstating that, or, or is that a truism that most people have one of those incidents at least? Gosh, I, I think it's it's always risky to say everybody has anything, but if if I had to bet, just about everybody has what they regard as serious failures. It's it's a fact of uh, career life. And I think you're right. Some people don't seem to move past them. I've seen clients with careers that look stellar to me, but they're holding themselves back because they're so upset still for something that happened a year or two ago. It's not that uncommon. And it's a really big career management issue. It's like taking baggage and putting extra weight on your shoulders or or overloading a backpack that you carry with you. Yes, and I think it can ruin your day for days after day. I think my uh, first real um, career events that felt to me traumatic were years ago when I was a young lawyer and I was starting to – uh, pitch clients. I was starting to try to bring in business. And to me, every time I made a presentation and you know seriously went after a client and I didn't get that client, it felt like personal rejection. What I know now, I didn't know then, is that it can affect your body like a physical blow. When you feel you're rejected, when you feel you didn't love um, live up to your own standards, it, it um, can put you in a state of uh, you know, serious stress. And so learning that that's just part of the process um, got me out of it. But I, I still remember how awful I felt and how I worried in the middle of the night that my career was over. And in not only do we personalize it, as, as you mentioned, but, you know, we get into the I'm not worthy uh, business and and I'm I'm a personal failure and I'm a fraud and and this is evidence of it and I I don't know why anyone would hire me kind of mode. And it's the story you tell to yourself that has so much impact 
on your ability to move past something like that. There's a wonderful book from quite a few um, years ago by um, an amazing psychologist, uh, Dr. Carol Dweck, called Mindset. It's Mindset, the New Psychology of Success. And what she does is introduce the term mindset as um, a way to describe how you feel about your ability to grow, how you feel about your abilities generally. She says that there are people who have a fixed mindset, and sometimes you can see how they get it from their parents. It might be a positive one. It might be, I am great, I'm going to succeed. Uh, It could be a negative one, but let's say it's a great one. So if you think, I'm terrific, I did well in law school, I'm going to go out, I'm going to be successful, I'm going to be one of the first women to do this, and you have a fixed mindset about your ability, even if it's positive, and then you stumble, you've lost your identity. It's like, I'm terrible. I am not what I thought I was. I'm never going to get past it. So if you have what she called a fixed mindset, you're really setting yourself up for looking at even fairly minor stumbles as not good enough. And you take it personally and you go through life for a little while, possibly, thinking of yourself as not good enough. The the, um, people who really bounce back quicker, have made a shift in their mindset. And we can do it. I certainly chose to do it. I had enough failures. I really <laughs> had to. But um, a fixed mindset you know, kind of um, links your personal identity to what you do. A growth mindset is you understand that one of the ways you get better at things, one of the ways you go forward, is you stumble and then you look at it and you figure it out. And when you know, I can always figure it out, then you can go forward. That is sort of the entrepreneurial mindset too, is it not? Because if you look at Silicon Valley or anybody who's in entrepreneurship, you know, the idea of failure is a, a daily enterprise. Absolutely. And it's something that it has become part of entrepreneurial culture and, you know, uh, innovation centers and classes that are trying to help, uh, whether it's kids or mid-career people, become more entrepreneurial. They're trying to sell the idea that failure is part of the process. And I think you need to go back a little further looking at uh, what Dr. Dweck wrote about and realize that maybe you don't even call it failure. Maybe you've got to teach yourself to look at it as part of the learning process. Well, that's a great segue to to the next uh, topic I want to talk about in this. And one, you've written a, a blog and and uh, you've talked about this a, a number of times, but. The idea of internalizing something and and not talking about it. And, you know, a lot of people I think are like me, perhaps not. <laughs> a lot of people are like, like me who go, okay, if I just don't talk about it, nobody will notice it and it'll go away. But it doesn't. It just sort of festers inside and grows inside and and impacts other things in life. You're a strong proponent of talking out things. How does that work with f- 
failure, on-job failure, career failure? Well, first of all, I think there's good ways and bad ways of talking about your failures. Okay. Um, sometimes it is good to, like, vent to a friend, somebody you can trust. Uh, um, sometimes it's your spouse, but sometimes it's somebody who's a colleague who understands the situation. So what happens when you do that is if you're working with somebody you trust, one of the things you can do is you can take some of the impact away because chances are you're catastrophizing. You're making it worse than it is. So gotcha. the, the gotcha. first benefit, you get to vent a bit, but hopefully that person helps you uh, put it into context. And if you really have failed in a, uh, say, in a workplace setting, maybe you had a great idea for a project, you did your best, it just didn't go. There are benefits to talking about it, not in a venting way or a pity me way, but a learning process way. As soon as you frame this as, we learned some things here, help me figure out how to do it better. You've shifted the conversation. You've given yourself a way to talk about the problem and manage it. And you've brought yourself kind of on the same side of the table of the person you're seeking advice from. So having an opportunity to talk with other people helps you make that shift faster. And almost always when I see people do that, they have to, sometimes clients have to like, oh, they have to prepare themselves and they're really worried about it. And they finally go and have this conversation with their boss or a colleague or something. And they come back and they say, you know, they didn't think it was that big of a deal. It, so there's two kinds of conversation. One is the purge. Yes, <laughs> which, yes. Which you and, have, and you've got to be careful with that one. <laughs> you have to be careful with that one and, and pick your pick your friend wisely yes, yes. To, to purge. But the other one is is more like a, a debriefing uh, after after something where you analyze something, you look at it, you you tear it apart uh, of what worked and what didn't. No matter how awful it feels, that's less personal. Yeah, it is. You in a in a in a career context, um, it's seldom life or death. I mean, there are situations, but the kind of things we're talking about routinely, uh, they may have bad consequences, but there's still opportunities to learn and find another project, to go after another client, or um, come up with another way of doing things. And that's what that entrepreneurial process is, is uh, trying things maybe faster than you used to, trying things even though you're not perfect, you're not absolutely ready, going for a promotion that you're not really prepared for, having to find your way, and then as quickly as possible saying, okay, here's what I learned, here's what went right, here's what went wrong, let's talk about what we're going to do next. That's the process. Now, this is not my thing, but I've been around people that do this, and it drives me absolutely berserk. And that is people who never assume responsibility for anything. Everything is somebody else's fault, and they caused the problem. They caused me to fail. They let me down. They did this. They did that. It's always they. That can be a destructive process, right? It, it can be. So I, I got a couple of suggestions about that. One of them, sometimes you do need to apologize, and I'll get to that in a minute. But when you're trying to, say, help a client or a colleague or somebody move past this phase of blaming everybody but themselves, it's useful to always go to the data. 
always go to the facts. And that might be doing kind of a process map of sorts. Uh, it's, it's helpful when you're working on a project that's risky is to kind of keep notes, keep track of what's happening. What are all the things that are affecting the project? What things work well? What things don't? If you have as much information as possible, you can start to see where the breakdown was. Maybe you there are people you did not get involved. Maybe there are people who didn't do their bit, but you've you know you've got the email trail, you've got it all. If you're kind of mapping things out and you're doing it in an objective way, saying, how could we do better? Um, hopefully, you can get people to the point of how can I do better? But if you lay it out, the the data will help you see that. Now, on the topic though of um, apologies, which is a different way of accepting responsibility, sometimes you made a mistake that offended people, you said something that was regarded um, as um, racist or sexist, you totally forgot to go to the key meeting. Whatever it is, we all make mistakes. And when it's something like that, you got to own it. Otherwise, it's going to interrupt your relationship forever. You know, even on a little basis, what drives me absolutely crazy is if I'm in a meeting and somebody comes in late, and I understand that sometimes people are late for a good reason, but they don't apologize. They just come in and <laughs> assume that my time was not that valuable. Yeah, yeah I, I think even on small things— showing that you can take responsibility and apologize. And, you know, there are ways to apologize. Uh, coming in and saying, sorry, that's not an no, apology. No, that's not it. And, and, and apology is to, first you acknowledge how you hurt somebody, how you inconvenience them. You let them know that you understand that it was a bad thing because they kept you for 15 minutes and you're a busy person. So so you acknowledge the uh damage. But lots of times in a work context, you want to go beyond that and you want to say, um, not only do I regret um, what I did, but a couple of more things. One is, this is how I'm going to make it better. You know, I'll, st I'll stay late and take care of X for you. Something like that C could be how you make yeah. it better. Or um, um, this is why it's not going to happen again, uh, that you're going to you're, you have that meeting that's always before your meeting. I'm going to shift it to a half an hour earlier, so I'm not so pressed to you know, come to this meeting. Come up with a plan, and that's a real apology. I, I know what I did. I understand the impact on you. This is how I'm going to do it better in the future. When you do that, all of a sudden you've got a positive interaction instead of a negative one. The best leaders I've seen or worked with are always uh, people who are open to suggestions. They listen. They actually cultivate people, yeah. uh, giving them advice or at least their point of view of why something worked or why something didn't work. I think perhaps if we fail, sometimes we isolate and, and don't do that. Is that important? It's terrifically important. I, the trouble with hierarchies, and all, all of these things are, are, are changing I now. I know, you're a big team person <laughs> yeah. there. But the, a, a trouble with hierarchies, even with a, a big flat team and one leader, is that it really is lonely at the top. And uh, what I noticed, uh, 
again, clients is the people who are kind of in the top of some little hierarchy. Maybe it's a department within a company or a government agency. They got to the top because they got, um, they like people. They want to be liked. They like to get A's. They work really hard. There are reasons uh, that they got to the top, but part of it is typically because they like good feedback. You know, they, they like interaction. Right. They want to know they're doing well. So all of a sudden they're at the top, and um, nobody will speak to them directly because it feels like now they're the boss. So navigating those kind of transitions, if you're the leader, um, being able to listen and listen without having to fix everything and listen with humility can help you get past it. But if you're the follower, you can help people too by get to get to that point. It's not just listening. Uh, am I correct? It's also soliciting. You, know, you actually go out and ask people who may feel intimidated to tell you something. Yeah, yeah. You actually go out and say, you know, my concept of what went wrong here is X. What do you think? Am, am I right, or is there a, a, a different angle that we need to look at? Yeah, and, and you can go even further. If you're going to people who are more junior to you, no matter who they are, there's, there are things that they know more about than you know. So if you go and you say, look, this is how it looks to me, but you know this process, or you know this client, or, or you know this technology better than I do. Can you help me understand and see if I'm on the right track or if I'm missing something? So you ask for help at a time that you're genuinely acknowledging an expertise or an insight, then that sets you up for working together. And the, the, the stumble can become the groundwork for a better relationship that's going to take you further the next time you try to do something together. We'll be back with Bev after this brief message. Ready to advance your career while accommodating your busy schedule? Central Ohio's only Executive Master of Public Administration program for working professionals can help you. It's conducted by the Ohio University Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at the new Ohio Dublin Center campus. It's affordable and meets just three weekends per semester. No GRE is required for admission. For more information, visit O-E-M-P-A dot Ohio dot E-D-U. Also, when we analyze failures in a career sense, I, th- I think, and jump in here and steer me a different direction, that when you fail, sometimes we get into the minutia of why we fail instead of looking at maybe the process failed. Maybe it was doomed from the start and it's not the minutia of a project. Yeah. And I, you know, I think ironically, sometimes we're afraid that social media is making us um, crazy and distracting us and uh, we're losing our ability to analyze. But I think there's something great that we all learn from social media without um, even being aware of it. And that is that everything's a numbers game. 
It's just like a sales call. The, the, whether you're pitching a client as a law firm, as I said, you finally figure out that to get a client, maybe I have to pitch five clients. You know, there's some kind of number. And the other four aren't mistakes. They're not stumbles. They're just part of the process. Well, with social media, you know that you can um, be tweeting a, something about this podcast. And maybe I'm going to send it out and nobody's going to see it and nobody's going to retweet it. But then maybe I'm going to do it again and again. And on the fifth time I tweet something about this podcast, somebody's going to see it and they're going to really like it and they're going to make a comment and somebody will retweet that. And all of a sudden, a thousand people have looked at that. And it took five tries. The first four were not failures. The first four were part of the process. And if we look at every little tiny bit of data as a failure, um, sometimes we just haven't put it in the context that it takes five tries or 100 tries to get some feedback. That's interesting because if I'm promoting something or a podcast or something we're doing here at WOUB, um, you work on wording. Yeah. And sometimes the wording that you start with certainly is not the wording that resonates. And and I never thought of it as being part of the process. I've always thought, well, damn, if I had just changed that. That's right. <laughs> that, that That's right. First tweet, I wouldn't have to do it five times. Exactly. But I you keep going, so you haven't yeah. let that discourage no. you. Right. So so what we learn is we get better at it. At just about anything, if we try something, it doesn't go perfectly, we try again quickly, we try again, you really do find success as the result of persistence. If you don't waste time beating yourself up and blaming yourself or other people and get right to what do we learn, let's try again. You're, you're a big proponent of constant learning too, yes. aren't you? Yes. Oh, oh, yes. I mean – it's, it's I know you've life. read a lot about it and, and written about it yourself, but it's it's something that you think is essential to any career path. It's essential to your life, to your brain, to your relationship, to your fun. Learning is how we um, uh, keep a healthy brain, but it's how we keep engaging in the world in new ways and building relationships. It's its really something that uh, it can be transformative for anybody who's kind of in a slump. If they can start learning something new, and I don't care what it is, it can be unrelated to their career or their challenges in the moment, but if they can get excited about learning something new, it changes their attitude, their perception, it changes their body chemistry. You're also huge on planning, and uh, when a person fails in a career uh, move or a career path or a career project, sometimes we, talking about people who fail, don't look at the plan or don't look at a plan of how to correct it. We just wallow uh-huh. in, the, in the failure. Uh, how do you... How important is planning, and how do you inter- interject that into the the whole process of coping with failure? Well, first, it's partly an inherent part of our personalities. Some people are kind of born planners and have to do it. Other people are more spontaneous and uh, kind of like deadline pressure. I am a born planner. I... Um, 
you know, I think about what am I going to do tomorrow and what am I going to wear and, you know, all the details I think about it. That's all good uh, because it can help you get organized. The, but it looks an awful lot like worry if, you, <laughs> if you're not careful. So I say for, – For the listeners out there, she's giving me the, 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 the stink the eye when, yes. she, when she says that. Some planners are really just worrying. But when, when we do that, what we have to know is a plan is a plan. It's not the thing itself. So you make a plan, things shift, you don't get hung up, you replan, you just keep doing it, you get faster at bouncing back. Um, you just, a plan is something that can point you in the direction, but if you see a roadblock, um, you you shift, you do something else. It's like a map, and if you're, you know, with have you ever been driving in GPS and it tells you to take a left turn here and suddenly it's become a one-way street? Right. <laughs> you don't say my plan says I have to take a left here. You you adjust. So so a plan even for those of us who love plans the plan is 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 just an aid and you have to be able to let it go or else it just becomes a trap. I remember back in the days when I was doing trial work um one would go into a trial, whether it was a criminal defense or a civil trial, it didn't matter, with a plan. And, but you also had to have alternative plans. Yes. And if, if the case went this way, you zigged that way. <laughs> and, and, and it was – and I know in, in your kind of practice where you were trying to convince people of, of facts or particular situation, you had the same – Absolutely. I and personally I love plan Bs. I mean <laughs> They sometimes were the best. Yeah, and, and with clients and I think with colleagues there's something that you can do. Sometimes people have that stupid idea and you know it. I mean that you you see somebody who is wedded to a path that may not be the right path. And a way to frame that and that person you're talking about can be yourself. That can right. be something inside your own head. So you label that thing that you're wedded to or that your colleague is wedded to, and you say, great, we have a plan A. But you know, it's always wise to have a plan B and maybe even a plan C. So let's accept that as plan A, but let's have a plan B. And I can't tell you how often with clients, um, plan A is something they have to get out of their system, but plan B is what they get excited about because they have to think about something fresh. They have to look at a new way. And very often, our best routes are, are, are shaped by our plans, plan B. Would I be correct that more rigid people in their way of thinking and approach to things would perceive more failure than someone who is less rigid? Well, I, I, it's kind of hard to, I think, generalize about rigid because there are different ways of being rigid. It can be about values or it can be about routines. But I think that takes us right back to uh, Dr. Dweck's work with mindset. If you have a mindset that things have to be like this, is that what you tell yourself rather than there are opportunities, we can always figure it out, that kind of rigidity, that's going to lead to um, opportunities to blame yourself, to see small things as failures, to make yourself miserable sometimes because things you cannot control um, be, get you frustrated. I would assume that perfectionists are not necessarily 
inherently good leaders. Gosh, we are really talking about a lot of things today. I, um, I, I'm having a hard time with a generalization about that too. But I, my gut is that that you are right. If you're a perfectionist, in the sense, this is how it's got to be. That very often translates to micromanaging. My point is that the variations in something that somebody might perceive as a failure because they weren't part of the initial plan you're right on often yeah. become a better solution or a better approach absolutely it, it, and you're exactly right people who think of themselves as perfectionists and think this is how it has to be done and don't allow room for variation don't allow I, it's not even error if they don't allow for the better idea to come in um, they can look at a success and label it as a failure because it's not their way. Back to making this a, a personal journey, not my journey, but a personal journey, is that so many times we have young people that, that I'm around all the time who haven't failed at anything in in their minds or or in reality they've done well at, at high school they're doing they've done well at college they get a great first job uh, they're doing well in their career failure isn't even part of their vocabulary mm -hmm. and then it comes yes it's devastating and and I really want two or three things that I can tell that young person that can help them get through that. Can you help me out with that? Well, one of them we already talked about is to put things in the context of the process. Got it. And, and, and not personal. And Yeah, and, and say, all right, this is, this is what you've learned, so forth. But another thing is to look at people you admire and then find that they've stumbled too. I mean, it can be... Um, a world leader. I in, in politics, in um, my years in Washington, the 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 first president I ever observed personally, uh, that is mm -hmm. not personally, but right. um, read about as an adult was Jimmy Carter, and wow, he was he just was a terribly unsuccessful president, and he 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 was voted out of office overwhelmingly, and. Um, he kind of left town looking like a failure. And he he rebuilt himself. He learned about all kinds of things from the issues of Africa and uh, to ha creating Habitat for Humanity. And he won a Nobel Prize. Now he's a senior statesman. He is somebody who, uh, if somebody's interested in history, he, he, he is a huge, conspicuous, worldwide failure who turned himself into an a leader who other people are inspired by. But you can look around probably in your – if you're talking with students, you can look at somebody at the university. You can look at a sports figure. You can um, almost always find somebody nearby who failed worse and has done well. And so that can be a way to help somebody else. Is um, I, I remember as a young lawyer at the SEC, my um, – office mate and I got our news on the bar exam passage um, of the um, when it came out in like November we're taking the bar exam in July and 
I passed, but she um, failed. This, we get the news on Saturday. So Monday morning, she came work, to work in tears. She was sure she was going to be fired. And um, very promptly, there was a message from the division director, a big deal at the SEC, asking her uh, to come to his office. Oh, and no. she thought she was going to be fired. fired. She went to his office and he said, I just want you to know that I failed a bar exam twice. It, you know, some people have more trouble with tests. It's right. not a big deal. I have absolutely, absolute confidence in you. Any kind of support you need, time to study, whatever. Don't worry. It's not a big bump in your career. And it was life-changing for her. Right? It made a huge difference because somebody she admired said, look, I've done worse than you. And um, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. Bev, as always, you're wise <laughs> and give good advice. I really appreciate this because this is something that everybody confronts. Absolutely. And we can move past it. Thanks, Thanks Tom. Appreciate it. Today, we've been talking with career counselor, executive coach, and author Beverly Jones about how to survive an epic fail in your career. Jazzed About Work is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is the co-producer. I'm your guest host today, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Jazzed About Work. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or at the NPR Podcast Directory. You may also listen to past episodes at woub.org slash listen. Thank you.